The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. The Venice Biennale is two months away, and this week we take our first look at what's in store in the art world's most essential biennial exhibition. We talk to the curators of three national pavilions, the British, Welsh and Scottish representations, and find out about their plans and about the nuts and bolts of curating a Venice pavilion. Also this week we'll hear about Troubles at the Armoury Show, one of the big art fairs in New York. But first, the pioneering painter, performance artist and filmmaker Carolee Schneeman has died aged 79. Her influence was enormous, as Schneeman herself put it when talking to The Guardian newspaper in 2014, her work became a bridge that had to be crossed by young feminists working with their bodies. Catherine Wood, curator of international art at Tate Modern, who's a specialist in performance and live art, joins me now. Catherine, I'd just like to begin by asking you your reaction to the news that Carolee has died. I actually just found it so hard to believe she was such a continuing life force. And um, I remember one of her good quotes was her saying that, you know, her most important work was going to be made tomorrow. So it's just it's terribly sad. She just encompassed, you know, such a range of works, beginning with how she saw herself as a painter and transformed the position of the female body and the gaze so radically at that point and then continue to invent and invent and keep going. That's right, because I think this is the thing. She's always called a performance artist, but she always thought what, that, that whatever she did has had as its background painting. Exactly. She was absolutely clear about that in the conversations that I had with her, that she saw herself as a painter. And, you know, that early work, like Eyebody, in parallel with Vienna Actionism, was all about turning the gaze around and you know, responding to the, the criticism that was coming to her with the idea that if she put herself into the work, it was narcissistic, whereas if men put themselves into the work, it was universal. So, yeah, she, she had many more... Um, I mean, her, her practice was much more expansive than saying, I'm a body artist or I'm a performance artist. In fact, in a way, that was a niche that people tried to put her into as a woman, I think. Right. I mean... It, it is important, though, to acknowledge that in the early 60s, she was a, a sort of a pivotal figure in that whole Judson Church movement, which is this extraordinary flowering and, and progressive and revolutionary moment in New York art and performance. Well, yes, absolutely. She did contribute there in an extraordinary way with Meet Joy, 1964. An incredible work, actually, also, if you think about it, in parallel to the seriousness and ritual kind of horror of the interactionism, the absolute exuberant Dionysian joy of it. So she is remembered for that, also for appearing as um, Manet's Olympia in Richard Morris's performance, Sight, where I love the fact that she goes from putting herself into the painted abstract expressionist scene in Eye Body to appearing as the female figure, you know, in that kind of tableau vivant again, like interrogating historical painting and the position of the woman's body critically and in, you know, keeping on doing it in new ways. And of course, film was 
at the centre of her work right from the start because she made this extraordinary film, Fuses, in which she uh, filmed herself making love with her then partner and then proceeded to uh, burn and and paint over the the film and then re in a way make a collaged film out of the out of the results. And that in in that time again is a radical gesture, isn't it? Absolutely. And I love how she carried through the nuance and sensitivity of her approach to materials that she's grounded in her painting to such an incredible approach to film, to playing with film. And also, it's emblematic, that work, and groundbreaking in terms of how she stages female desire. And she'd done that, you know, in those other works where she's kind of cataloguing her lovers and their performances. Um, Pretty radical. But, you know, she she said that she wanted to try and make a film about sex and eroticism from the female gay's point of view. And would it still be pornography was the question she was asking. Um, She used her own body in her work throughout. And in fact, her own body is at the heart of one of her seminal pieces, which is Interior Scroll from 1975. Can you describe that work? Well, yes, that's a work that's um, represented in the Tate collection, and it was a performance work. It's one of her most well-known works where she um, appeared wrapped in a sheet naked and proceeded to uh, pull a scroll out of her vagina um, from which she was reading from a book, Suzanne, a Great Painter. So again, it's one of the works where she was pitching art history against her own immediate and visceral experience of her own body um, her body being kind of painted both you know subject and object in the work the way that she staged that conflict between the intimate and erotic experience of her own body and that wasn't something she rejected by its female associations but she staged it in conflict with being the depicted and being the nude model and that was a tension in her work that was really productive and I think the fact that she left it quite unresolved is what makes the work so generative. Already in this conversation, you've you've referred back to uh, historic works and to historic ideas, to even ancient ideas. And this is something that, you know, the more you revisit her work, you see that she's constantly calling on the past to revivify it in the present, isn't she? Yeah, absolutely. And she's thinking very ambitiously about, you know, art history and her place in it too, in a way that's not afraid of the criticisms that were coming at her. She said that she got a long way with her stubbornness. Um, And you can see that. But I know from speaking to her personally, she had a really hard time as a woman artist in that period with the kind of macho culture, especially where her heart was in making paintings. Did that include snubs from... uh museums and that kind of thing or was it just a sort of snarking in the artistic community what sort what sort of resistance did she encounter well I mean it wasn't all resistance because I'm now thinking of one lovely anecdote she told me about how Robert Rauschenberg supported her and other artists especially women artists who weren't making a lot of money she told me a story about how he not only paid her medical bills for her when she was in need but also Um, She came home from his parties with her pockets stuffed with fruitcake and slices of beef, which I just thought was such an amazing image. (laughs) But it also points to the fact that he was making quite a lot of money at that point, selling his paintings, and hers, 
operating in a similar language, a related language, also crossing over into performance and collaboration as he did. They were both involved in Judson and Happenings. She was really not making any money at all. So it was partly attitude from teachers while she was at art college, from fellow artists. Um, but it was also systemic. She wasn't really making a living and, and she wasn't showing so much. And in fact, it's, it's, it's interesting to note that I read that her first solo show in the UK, for instance, was only in 2014, which seems to me to be astonishing. But, but you know, look, looking back, that's how long the resistance lasted. Yeah, that is insane. And the incredible retrospective that Sabina Breitweiser organised in Salzburg and um, went to MoMA PS1 was testament to such an extraordinary body of work of such wide range. So it's mystifying that it took so long, really. Now, the word influence is sort of banded about very liberally in the art world, but Carolee was undoubtedly an enormously influential figure, and particularly on young artists. You've worked with lots of young artists working in the live art field in performance. Tell me about the kind of influence that you you would measure her to have had. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to witness, actually, because I think her influence has grown even in the past five years, uh, exponentially somehow, because her, you know, artists have been working their way back through performance history as more of the images and documents and stories come to light and get shown. And whilst there was a lot of attention to the more minimal side of Judson earlier, I think Carolee Schneeman connects with uh, visualizing sexuality, women's desire, erotics, um, her combination of painting and performance together in this free, often quite messy way. I think there's a young artist, a young, you know, there's a group of young artists or many young artists who are responding to the freedom of what she did that's quite uh, difficult to categorize art historically and it kept on shifting and her self especially her images of herself, her self-staging, obviously speaks on one level to an Instagram generation. But there are other there are choreographers like um, the Danish choreographer Meta Ingvartsen, who's worked specifically on Meat Joy as a point of historical reference and, and the question of remaking or restaging or what that would mean now. So I think the influence is still growing, actually, where Karen Schneeman is concerned. It's, it's a sad day, but it's been great to talk about this eternally fascinating artist. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. It's really good to remember her and think about where she's going to take us next. Now, it's one of the big art fair weeks in New York with the opening of the Armoury Show, but all has not been well. One fair has been relocated, another has been cancelled and replaced by a whole new event. Margaret Carrigan, our Deputy Art Market Editor based in New York, has been reporting on this story in the lead-up to the fair and has just been to the opening. She joins me on the line from New York now. Margaret, it sounds like a bit of a mess. It's been very... Uh, chaotic in the lead up to the spring fair week here in New York. That's for sure. Um, just a couple of days, about 10 days out from the uh, date that the Armory show was due to open its 25th edition. Um, that it was revealed that it's home at pier 92. It stretches across pier 92 and pier 94 pier 92 is deemed structurally unsafe and unable to support a large amount of visitors. They had to go into a, uh, emergency planning mode. And what this looked like for them is shuttling down 
the piers just a little bit to Pier 90, where their sister fair, Volta, was set uh, set to open on the same date, the 6th of March. And um, they chose this location because it had the same, roughly the same layout as Pier 92, which they were no longer able to use. And so they had to shuffle a third of their exhibitors down there. And this actually resulted in Volta having to be canceled for the 2019 New York edition. Um, and there were no plans to um, get another edition of Volta up and running. Uh, and then what this actually spurred was a, a you know massive effort among some of the local galleries here to help out the Volta exhibitors that were displaced because so many international exhibitors, especially had already started shipping their work over and couldn't get it back in time. Um, so now there's a, there's a whole new fair in the, in the city called plan B where a few of the Volta exhibitors have now, um, set up shop inside David Zwerner's space in Chelsea, along with a, a nearby, uh, Chelsea warehouse that's being lent by an anonymous donor. So to say it's been, Messy is probably an understatement, but I, I think they've somehow managed to pull off two fairs still, um, and <laughs> things are chugging along nicely so far. Is there any indication of like, you know, that things like insurance and the cost to the people who who uh, were planning to run Volta and how much the galleries would be entitled to in terms of payouts, all that kind of stuff? I mean, is, is any of that detail emerged yet? Not yet. So far, Volta announced that they would reimburse all of their exhibitors for their booth fees. But um, as in terms of the actual cost of Volta, they haven't disclosed any numbers yet. Of course, the booth fees is just a part of the of the actual cost of exhibiting at an art fair. So a lot of these galleries are still out of pocket for the you know the the artist work that they were producing, the creating a shipping costs and the um, customs costs of getting it into the United States, which are quite high for international exhibitors. They were still out of pocket for all of that money. And um, I think that was why Volta was very keen on helping to support this new Plan B initiative, which they are helping to fund. So it, it's probably a very pricey gouge for a fair like Volta, which is much smaller than its armory sister. I mean, also, apart from anything else, I mean, I would imagine a New York fair in one of the big uh, art fair seasons is one of the big money making moments for the kind of smaller galleries that are actually showing in Volta. So it, the, the sort of potential hit for galleries that are um, in that sort of on that sort of level might be enormous, actually, if they want if they aren't able to take part in a fair. Oh, absolutely. And especially with a fair like Volta, like, you know, a lot of these galleries that are exhibiting in, in these smaller satellite fairs like Volta, um, this is their first big foray into getting work seen by New the New York collector base. And they plan and they budget their years around to getting into the shows like that. And on top of that, Volta was uh, one of those fairs that was a really good stepping stone to larger fairs. So the cost to exhibitors is not only a financial one, it's also, you know, time spent and investment in trying to get their trying to get their foot in the door of larger fairs too for you know um long-term investments for where they want to show next that's right and so is there any sort of sense of i mean you you know you've now had a day where you've had a chance to to be uh, at the fairs what's the mood about this about this um development is there is there a sense of anger or do you think is there a sense of sort of indomitability and um and a sort of community spirit emerging amongst the galleries I have to say it, it's very community community driven right now, and I really I think that's a real feat. Um, that the, it's kind of one of those situations where like no news is good news. It's just business as usual at the fairs so far, which is given it 
what's happened in the last couple of days is really positive. And I think this goes to uh, all of the fair directors, which, you know, there are several fairs going on right now, which includes Independent New York, um, which opens on the 8th. And then also um, Armory, of course, opens on the 6th. And then there's Spring Break Satellite Fair and Art on Paper. There's tons of smaller satellites. And I think all of the directors of these fairs have been really collaborative and communicative with one another to make sure that these fairs still came off without a hitch because it is very important for the exhibitors that are coming here. And it's also very important for the, um, you know, the commercial art market in New York. This is, this is why New York remains a preeminent place to show work for a lot of dealers because of the wealth of galleries and collectors here. And I think that, um, Nicole Berry with the Armory Show, Elizabeth D with Independent, Amanda Colson with Volta. I mean, they speak very openly about, you know, the late night phone calls. They were all on together to make sure that exhibitors would have as many options as possible to show. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it seems to me that there's a, there have been a series of events which, which suggest that at the moment staging art fairs in New York is, is a thorny process in the sense that we had the moment with um, Ben Ginocchio, who was the former director of the Armoury and the Me Too moment, you know, because of allegations, he stepped down. We've had the Freeze Art Fair last year, which was affected by extremely high temperatures and they had problems with the heat. So there's a sort of sense in which, in which, uh, fairs in New York seem a bit beleaguered so this idea that the, the community sort of um, gathering together to to fight against these forces seems quite heartening almost in a way what what you're bringing up Ben is actually really important and I, I think this is what gets to the the um, the problem with the fair landscape in New York right now is that one slight misstep or hiccup can have huge repercussions because the stakes of the the, the financial stakes of putting on an event here in New York are huge. Um, so like you said, you know, just, you know, having a scandal like with Ben Ginocchio or, you know, just having a hot, really hot day and inadequate venting at, at freeze last year, one small blip can really hurt the prospects of a fair in New York because it takes so much, uh, so many resources to get one going. And, and the, one of the biggest issues facing these fairs is often just the, the problem of real estate. With having to move peers so abruptly, I think it's proven that every fair is at risk of always losing out in New York, which is a really bad place to be in. And, and I think that a lot of directors of these fairs and, and gallerists as well are coming out and talking about this, about the about how New York and its real estate market has become very untenable for creative industries. In the sense that it's just moving so fast, and any 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 sort of free space is snapped up so quickly by prospectors, etc., that, that that it's difficult for any creative industry to bed down. Is that what you mean? Yeah, and I think this is really spoken to well by Heather Hubs of Nada, which they chose to cancel their 2019 fair in New York back last fall, and. I think that's kind of been overshadowed by, you know, the, the chaos of the Armory Volta situation this year. But I thought that was a very telling moment because basically Heather was very candid about it. She said, you know, we had this great space and it was swept out from under our feet within, a, you know, within a couple of months. And I that's kind of the, everything. There's a, a development race going on here. The real estate is increasingly privatized here in New York. It's exceptionally expensive. That's nothing new, but the rates keep going higher. Like um, the Tribeca area, I think, was just listed as 
one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive zip codes in the United States. And that's where a lot of these galleries and art fairs are going on is in that area. Um, and I, it's just the, the rate of development and the way it pushes out all of the current inhabitants of that space makes it very difficult for any, for any industry to get a foothold, especially the creative industry. Nada's solution was to do a kind of festival of gallery shows in a sense mm. is that is that right yes so so which it seems to me is indicative of a shift which we've noticed with this process in with this project called condo which is taking place in london first and now is rippling throughout the rest of the world in various places in the sense it's almost like galleries are taking back control <laughs> in the sense that they're saying okay so the fair model has its problems galleries are still a vital part of the art community and in some ways if needs must then it's through the gallery model and new ways of pushing it that we can establish new territory in a way yeah it i find this really interesting too because um it's almost like a hearkening back you know um where we're gallery walks and and um kind of like the the scrappy gallery neighborhood scene thing is very much a thing of like the 1990s, you know, when, when art fairs were just starting to become a big thing. And so this kind of looking backwards thing that's happening now by all of these galleries, kind of, like you said, coming back around and, and, and galvanizing in this way, um, in light of some of the troubles that fairs are posing. Um, I, I think it really shows that there's something not working in the ecosystem, right? If we want to look back to something else. Um, and I think that's very telling where I think we're going to see a lot more of these as well. I, Nada was not the only one to launch this gallery festival. Like you said, Kondo has been doing it for a little while. Independent Art Fair also launched their own kind of festival of galleries this year. They're doing a big Tribeca art walk. Um, and there's there seems to be a real desire to refocus attention on the on the galleries because the fairs i think are really struggling to 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 maintain their their footprint here i mean for those of us that find art fairs rather unpleasant experiences this i think is good news on which subject you've actually now been into the fairs so tell us what's the atmosphere like in the in in terms of uh you know numbers of people in terms of sales all that kind of stuff what what, what does it feel like on the ground in the fairs when armory opened yesterday it was busy as usual it, plenty of people showed up i don't have the exact figures yet but um i i think Overall, it it was pretty, it was a soft opening, maybe. A lot of the gallerists that I spoke to were reporting some early sales, but nothing remarkable yet. Um, a lot of people do say that the collector base in New York is, you know, ready to buy, but considerate about it. So they don't expect to make a lot of sales the first day. They want to, you know, have a lot of conversations and make considered choices. Um, so overall, everyone seemed very positive. And a lot of the dealers that I spoke to were very complimentary of the way Armory had dealt with the crisis just days previously, because they didn't feel rushed or hurried. And they felt like they were able to just like pitch up to the fair and do their job as expected, which I think is really telling. And they were thankful for that. Um, so again, it's one of those issues where no news is good news in this, in this situation where uh, they were just happy that collectors were coming through and um, 
you know, sales were chugging along as usual <laughs> so far. Right. I suppose I'm quite interested in the fact that obviously Freeze LA has just happened. We've talked a lot on this podcast and in the art newspaper in general about, about you know, we collectors are an international group now. They will fly to the big fairs. Do you think there's any sense in which a big fair in LA not that long ago can have an effect on a big fair in New York quite soon afterwards? Yes. <laughs> um I think I think the big takeaway from for me from Freeze LA was that um a lot of people likened it to something like Armory where it brought in a lot of regional US collectors um that were, you know, ready to buy and knew what they were looking at. Um and that's, you know, versus something like Art Basel Miami, which brings in collectors from all over the world and has a very like diverse collector base that it brings in. Whereas Armory and LA, I think, are kind of gunning after the same uh, the same demographic, albeit on different coasts. I don't think that the an LA fair will unseat a New York fair necessarily, um, because the New York collector base is really dedicated to the city. But I think what we're seeing is a questioning of where critical mass is in the creative industry in the United States right now. What do you, what do you mean by that? You, you mean that uh, there is there has to be a sort of form of consolidation, ultimately, that, that emerges from all this chaos? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think um, what I mean is that I, it's like, where, where are the artists working? Where are the galleries doing business? Where are the collectors? Like, it, it's a domino effect. And I think that Freeze LA just shows that um, they're... they're there's more out there than New York in the U.S. right now, and and we have to ask why. And I think the the kind of mayhem that ensued this spring season with the with the Armory show um, kind of proves that there there's a lot at stake in New York right now. Well, it's a fascinating subject, Maggie. Thanks so much for talking to me. Thanks so much, Ben. The Armoury Show and the Independent Art Fair continue until the 10th of March. Plan B is on until the 9th of March. You can read Margaret's story on the problems with New York Spring Fairs online at theartnewspaper.com. And if you're at the Armoury Show, pick up our special edition of the Art Newspaper while you're there. We'll be back thinking of Venice after this. Andreas Vesalius was only 28 and already a professor at Padua University when, in 1543, he published De Umani Corporis Fabrica, On the Fabric of the Human Body. The book completely transformed our understanding of anatomy. Next week, a first edition of the book will be offered in the sale of the Medical and Scientific Library of W. Bruce Fye in New York. One of its striking features are the anatomical drawings that are beautifully executed by artists from the workshop of Titian. They not only perfectly captured Vesalius's revolutionary insights, but they also influenced the representation of the human body in art for generations to come. As Bonham's director of books and manuscripts in New York, Jan Ayling, said, This book changed the way we look at the world, and with its blend of scientific exposition, engravings and typography, is a work of art in itself. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, the Venice Biennale opens to the public on the 11th of May and, as ever, will have at its heart an international exhibition, this year curated by Ralph Rugoff, the director of the Hayward Gallery in London. He's named it May You Live in Interesting Times, after a supposed Chinese curse quoted by the British MP Austin Chamberlain in the 1930s. The details of that show have been announced this week and we'll explore it further in later podcasts. 
But today we're going to focus on what arguably makes Venice the most anachronistic of biennials, its continued commitment to the 19th century idea of national pavilions. But what does it take to put together a national pavilion in Venice? I'm joined by three curators who can tell us all about it. Lindsay Young, the curator of Scotland and Venice, who will show the recent Turner Prize winner Charlotte Proger. Marianne McQuay of Wales in Venice, who are showing Sean Edwards' work. And Zoe Whitley, the curator of the British Pavilion, where Cathy Wilkes is this year's choice. Thank you all for joining me. I wonder if we might start by just introducing the individual projects that you're working on. Lindsay, tell us about yours. So um, I'm the curator and commissioner of Scotland and Venice, working with Charlotte Proger, an artist I've worked with a few times before, um, most recently on the Turner Prize, which she won um, in December. And we're showing a new film that she's making in the Arsenale docks, so a completely new location for Scotland and Venice, which is very exciting indeed. Over to you, Marianne. So hi, I'm Marianne and I'm the guest curator of Wales in Venice. Um, I'm working with an artist called Sean Edwards. He's a Welsh artist based in Cardiff. Um, he's shown previously at the ICA, at Spike Island, at um, Kunstverein in Freiburg, but it's his first time at a Biennale. Um, we're in a very beautiful church, the Santa Maria um, Alcatraz, which has been used by Wales before. Um, and it's both a former convent and a school. And Zoe. Hi, um, I'm Zoe Whitley and I'm the curator attached to the British Pavilion. Um, as my long title implies, we will be in the British Pavilion and we're absolutely delighted to be working with Cathy Wilkes. So an artist born in Northern Ireland, based in Glasgow, Scotland, who is creating an entirely new body of work that will fill all six rooms of our pavilion. Now, the listener will have noticed that actually we've got some very, very different venues that we're showing the art in. I'm interested in, apart from anything else, how you locate these venues. What's the process of, of, of finding the space and then, and then securing them for, for uh, showing the work? Um, I don't know about Marianne, but it's kind of unending torture um, <laughs> of walking around Venice in 30 degree heat, looking at venue after venue after venue to try and find something that's suitable for your artist and then trying to negotiate for something you can afford and making sure it's accessible for your visitors. So it was it was very difficult, actually, surprisingly challenging. And what about what about the churches? I mean, these ecclesiastical spaces. Is this a is this a sort of disused church? Or yeah, so um, we did actually like Lindsay have the same experience of looking at lots of venues, and then we settled on the one that Wales have used previously. So if you've seen James Richards or Helen Sear or Bedwyr Williams, it's it's the one that's um, used before. We really deliberately um, hung on to it because Sean wanted to respond to this sense of history as a Catholic church, and then it's present as a school. But um, we too looked for hours in the heat trying to find a venue that was in a good location that you could get into that didn't have any restrictions about what you could show that's a factor in Venice sometimes religious sometimes um, practical with the walls I think that's a huge factor and we felt we'd really struck gold when we found ours because we can do a lot to the building I'm not going to tell you what we're doing but (laughs) we we really can transform it in a way that fits Charlotte's aesthetic and that's something that a lot of the buildings weren't allowing us to do that we looked at now, Zoe, the British Pavilion is a sort of consistent space. It's this old tea room at the top of a hill in the Giardini. Indeed. So, you, it's much. So, yeah, more... so I'm losing at the location poker. So I don't <laughs> think I spent quite as much time in the heat. But does it does it pose 
different kinds of problems in the sense that it's a space that has more resonance or has the ghosts of Biennale's past for artists or is that in a way an advantage as well? Well, I think the the imposition of the structure and it is helpful to acknowledge that it was an Italian tea room because I think there is often this sense of it being so much this false symbol of empire, um, that it's helpful to think about these other lives that it has. But, you know, with every iteration, and I think the architecture pavilion where um, Great Britain got special mention for Ireland is a great example. With every iteration, there's always a transformation. And I think one of the things that was so true to Kathy's aesthetic is ensuring that this space was as pared back as possible this time. And I think people will be much more acutely aware of their surroundings and of the natural light and really um, trying to strip away any sense of pretense or an imposition that the architecture might otherwise impose. I mean, would Kathy, for instance, say to you, I like the way that Philida Barlow did this or I enjoyed the way Mark Wallinger did that. I mean, is it, 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 do you even do you have those kind of conversations? We haven't actually. So and it's not that the artist isn't aware. I mean, Kathy has a very special distinction of having been part of a group exhibition representing Scotland in 2005 and then also being part of the main exhibition in 2013 for Encyclopedic Palace. So um, there's been a consistency to her practice and, of course, very much an awareness of Venice and what's come before. But I think that as an artist, she has such an uncompromising vision and knew exactly what she wanted to do in that space. So it was less about comparing it to what's come before than making the space do what it needs to do to house um, this phenomenal new body of work. I just was going to say we're taking a similar approach with the church and even incredibly pared back. Sean's making a new body of sculpture, which I hadn't really said before, but we're just trying to have the most honest version of the architecture and then for the work to resonate with that if he was making a different kind of work we'd take a different approach but yeah we're going to leave the building the most pared back it's ever been i can't wait to see <laughs> i mean obviously because the biennale is such a major moment in the art world we imagine that these projects get planned quite a long way in advance but can you give us an indication of how far ahead you are in fact negotiating with the artists discussing ideas um not that far in advance it's been incredibly tight and it is for every time artists do it I think uh, Brexit gets a special mention in this year we'll probably come back to that but um transport woes transport my goodness but we um I applied with Charlotte as the artist I would show with in May and I should mention other people of course uh, Cove Park who are our partners and Mason Levy app who we're working with on it there's lots of us involved but we applied in I think around May, found out in June, and then Charlotte had to start making the work, but she was also doing the Turner Prize, as all artists are doing other projects. They can't just drop what they're doing, you know, so they have to manage alongside. And then we need to ship before Brexit, as I think everyone is. Yeah, so that isn't long. So that's re- this is really fascinating. We've been writing about this in the art newspaper. Annie Shaw published a, a, an article very recently in the art newspaper, which was talking to all sorts of people about fairs and all that kind of thing. So you're, it's very clear that in anticipation that there might be a no deal Brexit, you are you are making sure that all the artworks are out of the UK before March the twenty ninth. Yes. 
Okay, and is that that's common for all three of you? Correct. Yeah. Okay, this is fascinating. I mean, this is really interesting, isn't it? Because it, it points to a moment that we that where it, where to study being British or to be representing a nation in Venice, which is connected to Britain, is a deeply conflicted thing. Now, I'd like each of you to respond in a way. Is this something that the your artists are thinking about it's not necessarily going to be part of their practice they may not have a political practice but have your discussions been uh, concerned with what it is to represent a nation or part of a nation we've had just some discussions in the sense that um sean edward's project is is looking at what it is to not expect much or not expect much from life and that conditions of austerity produce certain political climates so it's by no means overt in his work but if you're looking at the effects of austerity long term short term then you feel there is a connection to brexit it's made it feel as a whole project just so important to be doing it so um Arts Council Wales, with support from the Welsh Government, and our lead, T. Palb, are, you know, getting the the show out in Venice, and it feels really important to keep all of those in- international relationships and conversations. So at the same time, it's more difficult. It feels really important to be doing this. Ideally, not in the middle of doing this, but it's it's a really important thing. So we've had kind of light conversations. It's just too much to really process into an artwork. It's just happening all the time and then not happening so. But in terms of austerity, we've talked about that. Zoe, Zoe, do you want to say something? Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with, I mean, I've really appreciated, you can hear it in my accent, um, I'm not British, I am African-American, and it means a lot to be the first person to be able to do this, to have been able to answer an open call and for the British Council to embrace um, a range of viewpoints. Um, it certainly isn't lost on Kathy or any of us who are part of the team that Kathy is an artist from born in Northern Ireland and, you know, based in Glasgow, as I said. So this sense that Britain is bigger than, you know, a kind of parochial um, summary of it and certainly that the art world that we all choose to be a part of and that we want to contribute to is certainly in no way limited by, you know, the M25. You know, all of these things are hugely, hugely important, but I don't think that they make themselves explicitly felt in the work. But, you know, there's no way for us to deny the impact of the times in which we live, in which we work. And so being able to somehow you know, in whatever small way, embody something that speaks to something bigger at a time of closing of national boundaries all over the place, seems like, um, feels really important. Lindsay? Yeah, I would agree with those points. I think it's too much to expect an artist to kind of, you know, add that extra layer when they're already exploring the kind of themes that are in their work. Charlotte is a really political artist um, and often explores well, always is kind of looking at queer communities and how they interact and kind of kinship. Um, we're both incredibly proud to be representing Scotland. Um, I'm Scottish, so I don't really sound it. And that that's a major thing for both of us to be able to represent your country. That feels very special. Um, and I think I completely agree in terms of our, our funders, our Creative Scotland, it is deeply important that we are presenting the most positive uh, Scotland on an international stage at this point in time. Um, we kind of all know what's at stake culturally, socially, and it's really important that people see how 
diverse and open-minded and exciting we are as a nation. Um, we're also waiting to see if anyone picks up on it, but I'm going to say it, next to Catalonia, uh, to independence-seeking hey. potentially nations, which is, you know, so there are lots of different layers to to uh, each of our nations going. That's one of the things I always think is fascinating about the kind of template that the national pavilions provide is that artists constantly worry at the boundaries of those and fray the edges in a way that's really important. You know, a question always comes back like, oh, does it still matter to have these things? But I think artists have constantly been questioning that. And the fact that there is something that can help us cohere in these different ways and then reconfigure the way we think about nation and identity is super important. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Uh, The Venice Biennale has been criticised for very many years for being the last bastion of a kind of 19th century idea of the great exhibition where yeah, you have and nations it is the representing oldest running... themselves. But, but, the, but, the, but there is, you know, nationalism has never been more important than now in all sorts of different manifestations of nationalism. So it seems to me that weirdly, by not dispensing with this so-called anachronism, actually Venice has made itself almost like the most relevant Biennale in that sense. <laughs> I think thoughts? it's also what you do with the work after. So ours is coming back for a tour of Scotland, which will be concurrent with um, the presentation in Venice. So we're trying to make that really democratic for people in Scotland who might be from Orkney or from Inverness and who aren't going to make it to Venice. And we're also touring afterwards with, we're showing at the Stadelic and uh, Mercy Union in Toronto. So it was really important to us that there was an international life after. Um, and if I can't dance in Amsterdam, or the partners are working on with that. So we've tried to make it as international a kind of project as possible. Yeah, Cathy's work will be touring to IMA. IMA is the Irish Museum of Modern Art Correct. in Dublin. Correct. Um, There was a real sense that, you know, those of us, even if we're part of the easy jet set, you know, there is still a privilege implied to being able to go to Venice in the first place and to not forget that actually the way that we want people to be able to engage with the work also has to have a relevance and a resonance um, in the UK and Ireland is really crucial. And the same for Wales, actually. There'll be a project um, while the Biennale is still on with National Theatre Wales, which will be something that can be accessed or listened to um, uh, across Wales and across the country. And then we'll tour in 2020 to t in Wrexham, Bluecoat and Liverpool and a number of other venues. So it's really partly how you are integrating back when you bring the work, but also who you take with you, because you've got a whole team of artists and technicians working with you, and then invigilators who are having their first, maybe their first international experience, not just going out with each other, kind of um, Wales always seems to hang out with Australia as one (laughs) country Um, but then you know you get this uh, and Scotland and UK, Um, but you get this kind of sense of being able to bring a whole team of people with you, and you're trying to give some people their first experience of an international biennale and that's where I think it also has this bigger impact than than one artist as well. Lindsay you talked about the importance to Scotland and I and by that you mean things like Creative Scotland who partly fund it. Um, I'd like each of you to talk about the the people that fund the the pavilions and what their expectations are and what do you mean by importance and to show the best Scotland because of course I would imagine you don't want interference from from those bodies so so how does that work? Um, so yeah, Creative Scotland are the majority funder, and then we've also sought and got quite a significant amount of funding from trusts and foundations, individuals, the kind of usual knocking on doors and and um, requesting help. And actually, I've been 
incredibly surprised. So I work in an institution. That's my day job. Um, I'm taking a sabbatical to do this. And I expected some of the kind of constraints that you find in an organisation like that. Didn't really find any. They've actually been extraordinarily generous with the way that they approach the budget. You know, obviously, we're not to go over and we're not to, uh, you know, be irresponsible. But beyond that, absolutely the most important thing is Charlotte making the work she wants to work and people being able to access it. Those are the two kind of pillars of what we're doing. So it's been an, or it is an incredibly stressful and exhausting project, but it's <laughs> at its core, it has this wonderful drive. I actually say a really similar experience. So Wales is funded by Arts Council Wales with support from the Welsh Government. We've also sought additional support and the Art Fund, for instance, has come on board for all of the projects. But um, there's been a remarkable amount of freedom with the project. Once the artist is selected, that's an endorsement of faith in them and their work. It's not that every Wales and Venice or every Scotland or UK has to do the same thing, but it's about the artist reaching their full potential and being able to share that experience. So it is incredibly stressful because you're working with these um, deadlines all of the time, but no one is questioning the practice. And that's what makes it actually, you know, the, the pleasurable side is thinking, how could this be the best Sean Edwards work, the best Charlotte Poja work, the best Cathy Wilkes work in this context? So a kind of similar experience, really. I've come off sabbatical from Bluecoat in Liverpool to do this and um, work with T-Palb and Arts Council Wales. And we have a committee that help advise us, but it's more about how to make it happen than, you know, whether the work is something that they like. That's the same. We have a steering group that we report to once a month and they're very experienced. And again, it's all, only guidance. Never questioning. You two are smarter than me. I kept my day job. <laughs> <laughs> and many extra grey hairs to show for it. That's um, the same. You're, you're, you're a curator of international art at Tate Modern, right? Exactly. And I start a new job immediately when I finish install as senior curator at Hayward. So <laughs> it's, it's a busy time. And I think what I appreciate, I always like when the three of us get together. And hopefully your podcast listeners will appreciate as well that we all try to be as honest as possible about this process. It is absolutely brilliant and absolutely exhausting. I think to deny that it isn't incredibly hard work would be to, you know, be lying. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, you're working for the for the British Council in this instance. So the British Council, the British Council are who are the people who run the British Pavilion. Yes. So the Pavilion was commissioned by Emma Dexter, and then I'm the curator attached. For did, the first did, time. did you know? that it was going to be Kathy when you applied? No, the route was they issued an open call um, at the end of 2017. Um, and I applied. I was the successful applicant in December. And then in January of 2018, a panel was convened, again, um, chaired by Emma Dexter, but with representatives from across the UK. So that includes Wales, that includes Scotland, that includes, you know, kind of casting as far afield as possible. The idea was that one is trying to get consensus and to kind of temperature take, but also to really be as inclusive and expansive as possible in terms of the artists that are being considered. So I was in the room for that process, but in a very different process to say Lindsay's. Um, it's the panel that chooses. So Kathy and I are sort of match made in this way. And then from that point started working together. One of the things that I've never been clear about is 
it comes everything comes under the rubric of the of the Venice Biennale but how much of a discussion is there with for instance Ralph Rugoff who's the man who is my uh, new boss <laughs> yeah Zoe's new boss at the Hayward and he's also on sabbatical or not even on sabbatical he's, he's doing not, two he's jobs there as well like every day but he is he is the curator of the main exhibition and 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 is there any discussion between him and the pavilion people? Is it's 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 completely independent. We got a letter saying we'd been approved, so he obviously doesn't hate the idea of Charlotte showing. As I could say, and in a, that you you find out the the thematic, uh, the interesting times um, theme after you've you're working with your artists, but, and and that does resonate through your minds. But you're you're sort of moving in parallel, I guess, to an extent. And I guess there's no way... I mean, that job is so huge. If you include the collateral events as yeah, well as the main... I mean, yeah, it would be impossible. So it's understandable. I think some of the confusion comes from the fact that there are two different models. So in the alternating years, when it's the architecture biennale, the artistic director for that does set a theme that the other pavilions respond to. And that isn't the same format where visual arts are concerned. What about the pressures on the artist? Because I think this is an interesting aspect. I mean, uh, Lindsay, you've worked on the Turner Prize. You know what kind of pressure Charlotte was under just a few months ago when you were, when she was a Turner Prize artist. How does the Venice Biennale compare? Because obviously it is an amazing shot window for an artist's work. They must be tremendously excited about showing in Venice, but there are also sort of daunting aspects to it. There really are all the major art critics from across the world that come it, your work is potentially there to be di- widely discussed and debated uh, tell us tell us something all of you about what your artists might be thinking right now i think it's it is interesting because the turner prize that's my kind of baby so i every time it's at tate britain i kind of run it and i don't know if i would have been any good at venice if i hadn't had that experience because it is very very similar it's the same amount same time frame almost and it's the same level of pressure and of kind of scrutiny and i don't know how they handle it they just have to sort of get through i think the really important thing is that they have a team around them that can listen to them when they need to talk if that's three in the morning if that's you know 10 at night if they need to have a chat about something we kind of have to be there to make sure it's okay as the turner prize it's pastoral care really a huge amount of this job is just making sure the artist feels supported and heard and heard and it's okay to be scared because it is scary you know there's there's no point denying that yeah a similar approach really um sean uh, teachers full time at Cardiff Met, and they've been fantastic. That we had to buy him out of teaching. They've supported it as well. The publication. He's got two children. Um, they're quite young. He's got a whole family, and you can't go totally absent from your friends or your family. <laughs> and so you're trying to balance the fact that life doesn't stop. You. We found out we got it because we applied um, together and with T Palb, uh, similar time actually. I think we found out in May, so it's really one of the shortest timelines, one of the biggest yeah, opportunities wow. you would have. So you're trying to um, make things possible, but also make lots of life things possible. But yeah, we talk a lot, we text a lot, we see each other a lot, and you're just trying to be as open as possible to ideas while you've got timelines running in your head. I guess that's the the thing you're there for also is creative conversations and then knowing, you know, when things have to kind of move. And also about setting parameters so that mm. they they know there are things they can say no to because you don't have to do everything. Every artist is different. And, you know, if you don't want to do a certain bit of press or a certain, you just don't. It's okay. Or any. Or any. <laughs> in the instance, in my instance, yeah. Leading on to Zoe. Yeah, yeah so Kathy's kind of, 
enclosed in making the work? Is that is that and is an intensely private person, and so chooses not to do press, for instance. And so that was not a deal breaker in terms of wanting to work with her, knowing the strength of the work that had come before, and the ambition that she set out to conceive for the pavilion. Um, there are parameters that can shift around that. It's interesting to me because Kathy had, I think, was part of a Turner Prize which had a sort of uh, a, a, a negativity in a lot of the critical response, which I thought was rather out of keeping with the with the quality of the work actually. Mm. And so she's had a, she's had a sort of high pressure situation, which I think may not she may not have been terribly comfortable with. Do you sense that's in her mind at all? You know, in terms of a kind of uh, a landmark moment in her career, and 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 you know that might be part of the reason why she's sort of not. I wouldn't want to speak on her behalf, but I mean, to Marianne's point, I think that there's an interesting kind of perception of what it means to be a curator and certainly of what it means to be an artist of international caliber. But they're human beings and they have lives. And I think we tend to think that there is one model of success. And actually, to go back and quote um, the previous uh, artist in the Visual Arts Biennale from 2017, Phyllida Barlow. There are lots of different models of success. And I love that one of the things she said is like, and one of them is like just keeping going through hell and high water, you know, and making the work. And so there are artists for whom having your picture in a glossy magazine is not a priority. And that's okay. And even if that's out of keeping with, you know, what we tend to think of as contemporary parameters of success and visibility, um, I'm there to support that and to not judge that because I respect and value the work that Kathy's making. So I wouldn't want to read anything further into it than that. Do you have, I mean, do you have idea, I mean, are you encouraged to think of what success might look like in terms of your pavilions? Oh, can I go first? Yeah. Because we had this conversation from the very first time we went to Venice together. The first thing I'd said to Kathy was, you know, obviously in ridiculous, you know, if we think of the Golden Lion as one kind of benchmark. And I said, you know, if you're not happy with the work that's produced, then we failed. So if the artist feels that she's made the work she wants to achieve, and I in the role that I've been brought on to do, can help support that to the best of my ability, then I think we will have succeeded. Now, definitely, really similar, because you just cannot second-guess the external factors that determine a claim or or not a claim, whatever that would be. Um, so we, we're just really talking about a show that feels like it works, works for the artist, for Sean, but with him it's like very much how it works with the space because the space will become half the work. So really we're having these conversations and I think that is what's possible still with Venice is to have that integrity or to think about what the artist needs. And I think if you look outside too much, it would just distract you from that. And, you know, I think it's good to... Yeah, just to really focus on the work. You go crazy curating for critics yeah. too. Yeah. And I mean, Charlotte, her films are always about herself and often about incredibly intimate moments in her life. They have her voice reading, you know, text mm. that she's written. Um, so she she is the one that has to be happy with that film. And it really exactly the same um, as my colleagues. It, it doesn't really bother me if anyone else likes it, as long as Charlotte does. They will. It's amazing. But <laughs> uh, she's the important one. Well, this has been a really interesting and enlightening discussion. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ben. 
the Venice Biennale, May You Live in Interesting Times, all the national pavilions and a huge number of other exhibitions and events open on 11th of May. Most of them, though not all of them, continue until the 24th of November. We'll be doing much more on the Biennale in the coming weeks, including reporting from Venice in May. Watch this space. And that's it for this week. If you haven't already subscribed, please do so. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or iTunes as it helps others to find us. You can follow us and tell us what you think on Twitter at Tan Audio. And you can find the art newspaper on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, of course. If you'd like to read more from the art newspaper, please subscribe to our free daily newsletter. It contains a roundup of the stories published on our website, previews of exhibition openings and live reports from the leading art fairs like the Armoury and events such as the Venice Biennale. You can subscribe at theartnewspaper.com and look for the newsletter link at the top right of the page. The producers of the Art Newspaper podcast are Julia Michalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David is also the editor. Thanks to Margaret and to Lindsay, Marianne and Zoe, and thank you for listening. See you next week. The Art Newspaper podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. <laughs>